Well, hello everyone. My name is Mike. So uh, happy to be here and so happy to see all of your beautiful faces. This is definitely the best looking congregation I've ever seen, even though I can't see your faces because it's dark, but uh, definitely the best looking congregation. Um, I, I was trying to think about what to talk about in these next two weeks as we do kind of a mini series and was trying to think about some of the stuff that I um, wanted to preach on. And I began praying and began asking God to reveal um, something that, that could hopefully be useful. And just asked the Holy Spirit to, to move. And as I began to study and read and process um, and meditate on all the possibilities that there's so many things God's teaching me because I'm so flawed. And I started thinking about a bunch of different things and um, wanted, to, wanted to talk to you about something specific. Um, but it's hard because I usually like to, you know, talk about fun stuff and, you know, grace and mercy and all that stuff. And that's, that's, that's good. But I really felt like the Holy Spirit had convicted me to share today about what I'm going to talk about. And so I want to do a series the next two weeks. It's called Limitless. And today specifically, I want to talk about wisdom and this idea of wisdom and what it looks like and the limitless opportunity for wisdom. And so I hope today, some of the scripture we're gonna read is not the, not the funnest scripture. It's not the most exciting. It's not the most, um, it's not one where you're gonna walk away and be like, wow, I'm super encouraged until we get to the end. Um, but just really sensed. And so if you would just join me in prayer, I'd love to start off just in prayer this morning. Uh, dear God, we invite your Holy Spirit in here. Um, we invite you to, to just talk to us, God. One of my biggest fears is wasting people's time. And it's not by accident that you brought these people here, to, here this morning. And um, I don't just pray for Waypoint, I pray for all the churches in the area, all the churches in the country and all the churches in the world, God. Uh, this morning, it's about you. I just ask that your Holy Spirit would move throughout our country, throughout our world. And Jesus, that you would give us an opportunity to be encouraged, be challenged. Just thank you for allowing these people to come here this morning. We don't ever take that for granted. And this isn't about Waypoint, Jesus. This is about your kingdom. And so we just thank you for who you are and ask this morning that things would be clear, God. We love you and it's in your amazing name, amen. I was a freshman in high school and I wanted certain things. Wanted to be popular, wanted to be known, wanted, you know, all these different things. And sometimes when you're in that space, you feel like you have to do certain things or you have to go certain places or you have to associate yourself with certain people in order to obtain that. And that ended up not being the case for me, but I was in a particular spot in my life freshman year that I wasn't necessarily pursuing God. And I was gonna make decisions that were gonna benefit the goals that I just told you about, being popular, some of those things. And I thought that I had to obtain them a certain way. So one of the things was going to parties. I worked with senior high kids for five years and I've heard all about the parties they've been to. I've heard about all the things they deal with. And specifically my freshman year, uh, there was this party, and I knew I shouldn't be going to this party. 
because at this house was filled with a lot of things that you would not want your kids to go to. So my parents did not want me to go to this house, but the basketball team that some of my friends happened to be going, I don't know why their parents let them go, but they did and don't know why my parents let me go on this particular evening. So we decided to go, and this would be definitely a place that you would not, uh, it was just a house you wouldn't go to. You knew at this house there was gonna be underage drinking. At times there was gonna be drugs. There was gonna be some sexual things that would probably take place. It was not a good place. And I remember going, and they had this bright idea at some point, some of the kids that were there, that things started getting out of hand. They were gonna go ahead and light the road on fire. I don't know. So they take a bunch of nail polish and put it across the road and things had already started to get out of hand a little bit and they you know, pour the gas on it or whatever and you can imagine the road is literally on fire. A giant area of the road is on fire across the whole way and cars are driving by like slamming on their brakes and people are going around it and things just get out of hand. And I was there and I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, why am I here? I don't... I don't, want to be, I don't want to be a part of this. This is so dumb. I'm going to end up getting in trouble. This isn't who I want to be. And so I, I had texted my parents and a bunch of the guys had texted their parents and they're like, hey, like, I think we're, we're probably just going to take off before like the police come. Well, the police happened to come very quickly. So the police came and now it's like, oh my goodness, we're in big trouble. This is not good. Like I didn't have anything to do with lighting the road on fire, but I'm here and this isn't going to be good. And who you associate yourself with is a really big deal, as we know. And so, kids, if you're wondering why your parents don't want you to go to certain places or hang out with certain kids, there's a reason for it. And so, the cop shows up, and I happened to be wearing a blue North Carolina hat that night. And I was inside at the time, and uh, one of the other kids that has my same build, same hair, also was wearing a blue North Carolina hat. And that was one of the kids that was actually out on the road lighting the road on fire. So a bunch of the cops come and they come in and they're super ticked and they've called the fire. I mean, it was a big fire. They called the fire department. Every, they get the fire washed up and everything. And the cop comes in and immediately the first thing he says when he opens the door, he's like, it was Mike Griggs. And I'm like, first of all, how the heck do you know me? because I haven't done anything, but maybe you gave me like a speeding ticket or something. I don't know how, but he's like, it's Mike Griggs. And I was like, okay. I said, I said, honestly, sir, I promise you, I was not out there. And he's like, no, it was you. I saw your blue Carolina hat. And by the grace of God, his nephew happened to be sitting in there with me, the cop's nephew. And he's like, no, I promise it wasn't Mike. He, he's been in here playing Halo the whole time. <laughs> and thank the Lord for Halo. And so... <laughs> I was in there playing Halo, and uh, I'm like, oh man, this is not good. So a bunch of kids like ended up getting a warning or whatever, but it could have been really bad. And so I share that because here's the deal. Wisdom has a lot to do with who you associate yourself with, the dysfunction that you let in your life. That's going to be a key word today, dysfunction. And another thing that is really big about wisdom is recognizing it before it gets in, because here's the deal. We all want to ask God to get us out of the storm, but we never ask God to protect us from the storm. Because oftentimes I'm in the midst of the storm, I'm in a troubled situation, or I'm in a broken relationship, or I'm in a something, you know, at work, or I'm doing this, blah, 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 or I've gotten wrapped up in a bad habit, and I want God to get me out of that. And what God might have been saying all along was, whoa, before you got wrapped up in that, why didn't you cry out to me? Why didn't you seek wisdom 
before you got to the storm. Because it's much easier to let the storm approach and me get, you know, get involved in everything and then say, whoa, I want out of here. The truth is I should have never went to that party. Now there wasn't crazy consequences, but there could have been. I've known people, uh, there's been kids in our, you know, our youth group that have told me about different things. I remember there was a kid I went to school with that had been drinking at an underage party and lost his full ride baseball scholarship. There's consequences. There's consequences to things we do. For me, I should never have went to that party, but once I was in the part, once I was at the party in the midst of the storm, that's when I was like, oh my gosh, get me out of this. I don't want to be here. And today we're going to look at a story that's not the, it, it's, a, it's a truly great story and there's a lot of juice here. We're only going to highlight some of the parts, but it's not a story you're going to walk away at first and say, whoa, like thanks a lot for preaching on that. That was depressing. It is depressing. And it's the story of David. Now in 1 Samuel, things are going very good for David. I mean, things are going really well. I mean, this guy's on the up and up. God's favoring him. God's blessing him. Terrific things are happening because he's really, he's really coming into his own and, and getting the call that God wants him to do to be king of Israel. So good things are taking place. I mean, he beats Goliath, which is an old school Shaq. I mean, that's how big this dude was. He was bigger than Shaq, but this guy's a big dude and Goliath comes in, takes him down. He's doing awesome stuff. And then in 1 Samuel says this, it says, David, a man after God's own heart. Now, if you've ever read that, you're thinking, oh my gosh, David is this, this terrific guy. I could never live up to him. He's got all the wisdom. He never made mistakes. He was the king of Israel. He beat Goliath. How can I possibly have anything to do with the story of David? I might as well skip it. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about David. Here's some of David's choices. We don't have time to go through all of them, but we're gonna highlight just four. So David's choices, David eats the holy bread in 1 Samuel 21, should not have done that. David plots murder after his ego's hurt in 1 Samuel 25, should not have done that. David has an affair with a lady who's taking a bath and her name's Bathsheba. That's just incredibly ironic. That's in 2 Samuel 11. And David displeasing senses to the Lord in 2 Samuel 24. So this guy, I think we can admit he's flawed. He's not as good as what, you know, sometimes we talk about King David, we think, oh my gosh, like, this is the pillar, this is the dude. David had a problem of letting things into his life and letting dysfunction in his life. And you're gonna see that in this, this story. When I was preparing for the message too, one of the things I always think through is like, how much can I paraphrase and how much scripture can I have in? I wanna have enough scripture because I don't wanna just be spitting my opinions. I wanna teach scripture, but we also don't have a whole, you know, we can't read the whole thing. So. I really do believe this as I was praying and I was, I was meditating on this. I really felt like this was the appropriate scripture to have. And so I will be paraphrasing a couple things, but hopefully you'll join me. There is a couple um, pretty crucial things here in this scripture that we're gonna dive into. So if you wanna focus your attention to 2 Samuel 13, 1, 2 up on the screen or your Bibles or your smartphones, whatever you wanna do, I'm gonna jump into 2 Samuel. Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. Here we see something really, go, really weird going on. You want to talk dysfunction in David's kingdom and David's family specifically? We have David's son, Amnon, obsessing over his half-sister, Tamar. This is how weird this is getting. He loves Tamar. He wants her but he doesn't think he can have her. So he basically goes in 13, verse 10 through 14. He goes and before this, it talks to basically somebody that would give him wisdom on, or I shouldn't say wisdom, but gives him 
um, an idea of what to do on how to get to Mar. And so he, he kind of says, I think you should have her make your favorite dish, come in, and then you can take advantage of her. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so in 10, he says, then he said, Tamar, Amnon says this, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to, my be- come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried, don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you'd be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please just speak to the king about it and he will let you marry me. It gets even stranger. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her and since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. We're seeing something incredibly dysfunctional being let into the king of David. And I already showed you a couple of the things that he had let into his life. He had father issues, he was a lustful guy. And now his sons are getting into something very strange. And Tamar, after she's raped, she goes outside and Absalom basically meets her, realizes what took place. And this is what it says in 2 Samuel 13, 21. It says, when King David heard all of this, he was furious. And Absalom, this is key, never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced disgraced his sister Tamar. What's beginning to take place in this story and the picture that's being painted is this. David is not dealing with the dysfunction. There's some very intense dysfunction stuff that has taken place with disgrace, with dishonor, all this stuff that Amnon just did by raping Tamar. And then what takes place, which even more you would think would be, that would be addressed. Because it says David was furious. If you're furious, you're ticked. You ever been furious with your kids? You ever been furious with, you know, playing, playing golf? My gosh, I'm furious every time I play golf. Have you ever been furious? You're, I mean, we're talking really angry. Like throwing a club in the pond angry. David is furious. He's not happy, but it doesn't say he does anything. In fact, he keeps his distance and he takes, his, he takes what could have been an opportunity to stop everything right there, the dysfunction and address it, and he doesn't. Absalom, his son, has the same opportunity. But what does it say? It says, Absalom never says a word to Amnon. He never says a word to him and he begins to hate him. Absalom begins to hate Amnon. Have you ever had stuff take place in your life and it begins to fester hate or anger. You begin to do and say things you don't mean, but you've gotten to such a place in your life that you feel like you hate something or someone and you, you never even really knew how you got there, but he's got a clear picture of why we would give him all the reason to say, I understand why you hate Amnon for what he just did. But instead of addressing it, he lets the hate build up over time. He lets it fester. What begins to take place is a plot that Absalom plans against Abnon. He wants to make sure that Amnon pays. Since King David, since my dad's not going to do it, he's not going to take it into his own hands. I'm going to take it into my own hands. Because he's not doing anything. He's keeping his distance. He's staying far away. But I'm going to make sure that this guy pays because of what he did to Tamar. And I'm going to make sure that it's death. So Absalom starts plotting. In 1328, this is what it says. It says, Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is high in spirits from drinking wine, I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. 
Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did, what, did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. You're seeing revenge. Tamar is raped by Amnon. And Absalom's going to make sure he pays. And so what does he do? He has his men kill Amnon. More dysfunctions taking place because there begins to be some lies that take place. And now what you're seeing is the dysfunction is even starting to grow more. You see, when everything took place, King David, instead of addressing it, he doesn't. Absalom, instead of addressing it, he doesn't. And what begins to take place is all of a sudden you see Absalom plot, kill Amnon, and now all of a sudden we know that the country, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel is becoming dysfunctional right before our very eyes in the story of David in 2 Samuel. It's becoming very dysfunctional. I think sometimes in our lives, we let things build up. We let things build up so much that it actually clouds our judgment. Sometimes we let our agendas take over. I told you about the story of the party because my agenda was to be popular, was to do you know, all this different stuff. I wanted to make sure that I was in. And I wasn't living for Jesus at the time the way I should have been, and I wanted to make sure that that agenda was trumped. And so I was gonna do anything it could to make sure that agenda was filled, Include, including not have wisdom. But then I'm in the midst of the storm at the party, and I'm asking God to take me out of it when all along I should have recognized it. So here's the deal. This story of David is not anything outside of what we go through. Because there might be stuff that you've let in your life with your family, with your, with your children, with your job. Maybe you've gotten wrapped up in something that you're just like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to get out of it. One of the examples I can give you, and it's, it's hard to, it's hard, it's a hard topic to talk about. But I talk about it with a lot of men. When you open up your computer and you're looking at something you shouldn't, and you know God said, this is not what I have for you. This is not what I want for you. This is not my view of sex. This is not what's taking place that should, that's gonna grow you. And you begin to develop a habit. You're asking at that particular moment after you've developed this habit for God to get you out of it. And all along he said, I wish you would have never opened up the computer. You see, we always want in the midst of the storm to figure out how God can get us out of the storm. I've done that many times in different situations in my life of maybe it has to do with job or maybe it has to do with marriage or maybe it has to do with a friend group. And I've gotten involved in something and I'm like, man, God, get me out of the storm, how I can figure out to be better. And he's looking at me and he's like, dude, you created this storm or you saw the storm coming, storm coming. you never asked me for wisdom. And this is something I really, really struggle with. I struggle with sometimes being in the storm with different things. And there's men and women that are here that are struggling and they're in the midst of the storm and I don't know what your storm is. I gave the computer example because I know that a lot of people struggle with this. I mean, it's a, we're, we're seeing statistics on this that this is not just outside the church. This is inside the church. The enemy has brought this into the church. It used to be one of those things where you're looking out and being like, oh, we'll never let it in these walls. I'm telling you people, it's in these walls. And it's, in, it's, it's begun to seep into our Christian lives all sorts of dysfunction. And David did the same thing. He let dysfunction get in his life. I've let so much dysfunction get in my life with pride, with anger, with selfishness, 
with all these different things that I'm usually crying out to God to get me out of the storm. And he's like, man, I wish you would have just asked for wisdom before the storm started. And it gets even a little more intense. You're thinking, how can it get more intense? It is. We know that Absalom was a very looking, very good looking guy. As Absalom is the old school Justin Bieber, just a very good looking guy. I had to give Justin Bieber a shout out. So in 2 Samuel 18, 14, we see this is what's happening. It says that beforehand, it says Absalom has just a very, very nice thick head of hair, like just very nice locks. And I mean, this stuff is heavy. He's a beautiful dude. I mean, the guy is just, the ladies are flocking him. And here's what happens in 1814. It says, Joab said, I'm not gonna wait like this for you. He's talking about Absalom. And I'll get to this here in just a minute. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, you just skipped down because Amnon just died. We're gonna get into a little more dysfunction because what happens is Absalom actually wants to be king now. He's gonna overthrow King David. He's gonna overthrow his dad. What begins to fester in King David of letting all this dysfunction come in actually starts to happen with Absalom. He becomes angry at King David that he didn't address the situation with his brother Amnon. He's mad at his dad. He's got daddy issues. And he's ticked because he thinks, you know what? You should have done something. You're the king. You should have said something. Quite frankly, I don't think you'd make, I don't think you make that good a king. I think now that I think about it, I make a pretty good king. So what does it say? Absalom begins sitting outside the gate. And we'll get into the gate a little bit. The gate in Israel would have been this thing that would have been the first layer of defense. You're sitting into the kingdom. Here's the kingdom. So you got the gate right here. The second layer of the gate would have probably been filled with troops. And then the third layer would have been the kingdom. So Absalom is gonna make sure that he's sitting outside of the gate. He's got anything that's gonna come in is gonna go through him. And so what begins to take place is Absalom sitting outside the gate. And this, this actually isn't the gate. We'll get to this. This isn't the gate. Um, but Absalom is sitting outside the gate. And people are coming to Absalom with their problems, with their things that they need justification, what they need judgment, what they need advice. And Absalom starts listening to them. Hmm, that's interesting that you say that. Yeah, I do agree. I think we could do this better. Oh, yes, I hear what you have to say. That's, that's right. Hmm, well, I don't think the king would do anything about that, but I think I could. And it says the people were won over. Absalom actually wins the heart of the Israeli people over to him. The nation's starting to be for Absalom and turn away from King David. Now King David's afraid. So he starts fleeing because he has no other option. So he begins to flee. Absalom's gonna start taking over. Absalom's riding his horse. His thick, luscious hair gets caught in the tree and he's hanging from the tree. And this is where Samuel 18, 14 comes in because now he's hanging from the tree. But King David is so torn and I want you to put yourself in King David's shoes for a moment. Can you imagine going after your son? Like your son's trying to overthrow you. In modern day translation, I would say this. Have your children ever wronged you? Have your children ever disobeyed you? Have your children ever, I don't know, maybe disgraced you or embarrassed you? Have they ever done that? Have your children ever turned their back on you? I wanna to venture to say that if you said yes to any of those, you would still do anything for your children. 
Like I, I, I thought about stuff with Case and Wells and all the things they could do. And while there's consequences for some of the things they do, if they're sitting in a jail cell someday, I hope, you know, I hope they're not. But if they're sitting in a jail cell someday, they're still my sons. I'm still gonna love them. Yeah, the law might say that you, you know, they need consequences and I get that, but I'm always gonna love my sons and I would venture to say you would do the same thing. No matter how your kids are treating you, you would, you'd still love them. That's exactly what David's going through right now because he's called to be the king of Israel and his son is overthrowing him. So he basically tells the Joab and the army, can you just be easy on him? Please just don't, don't do anything. He's my son. Maybe we can work this out. That's what he's thinking. But Joab says, no. I don't care what King David said, this guy needs to die. So Joab and his arm, armor bearers, they surround Absalom and they kill him. Now, how cocky and dysfunctional is Absalom? In 2 Samuel 18, 18, it says, during his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. Very impressive. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, which is, I mean, he built the pillar for himself, names it after, it's just incredible. And it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. And I wanna show you, that's the picture that we had up here. That is Absalom's Monument. You can see that to this day. People tour and take a look at that. And he built that for himself because here's the deal. He didn't think King David could be king anymore. And he wanted to be king himself. So why not? You're gonna be king yourself. You might as well build your self a monument. I asked Megan if I could build a monument of myself in our front yard a couple months ago and she said no. No, I didn't do that. But this is this is something that he's doing. I mean, he's he's cocky and he's he's got it all and he's like I'm going to build I'm going to build myself up. There's some very big intense pride and arrogance and some real trouble going on in Absalom's life to the point where he becomes incredibly arrogant and tries to overthrow his dad. Well, now he has died. This is where we see a different David. Because the David we know is very confident. He's a good leader. He's a good looking dude. He's getting things done. He's listening to God's call. First Samuel, everything's going for him. But now in second Samuel, we see a little bit of weakness. We see his weakest moment right here. In second Samuel 18.33, it says, after Joab and the army tells him that Absalom is dead. He's receiving the news that his son is dead. It says, the king was shaken. At this particular time, David has lost all confidence. He's shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and he wept and he went in to say, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. We're seeing him weep right now because he had let some intense dysfunction enter into his life. I understand that he was sad that his son, son died. But I'll tell you one of the reasons I think he was the most frustrated. I think he saw Absalom's death as a failure for himself. Because he let so much dysfunction in his family, so much dysfunction in his kingdom, that in this moment he's not just saying, oh man, Absalom's dead. The guy that was trying to overthrow me is dead. He's saying... I'm a bad dad, my son is dead. I had so much dysfunction, all my judgment was clouded. I didn't make decisions based on what God was calling me to do. I didn't use wisdom in, before the storm hit. I let the storm hit and even once the storm had hit, I just still let all this dysfunction into my life. And God has called David to be the king of Israel. This is a big deal. He's like, you gotta be the king of Israel. This is your main calling. 
now we see that David is actually starting to question this. And what I wanna ask you real quick is what have you allowed in your life that has began to cloud your judgment? Have you let things in your life fester up to the point where you have clouded judgment? I can be real with you. I've let so many things in my life cloud up over time and I, I struggle to use wisdom in certain things. I wish I could stand up here and be like, I'm perfect, I make great decisions, but the truth is I don't. And the truth is we don't because we let things get dysfunctional in our lives and we cry out to God. And I wanna ask you this morning, what have you allowed in your life that has allowed your judgment to be clouded? Well, here's the deal. Sometimes when your judgment's clouded, we need people to speak truth into our lives. David's judgment is incredibly clouded. And in 2 Samuel 19, 5, 8, we see somebody call him out, his general Joab. Joab goes to the house and to the king and he says, today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see, that if you, I see that you'd be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. And I think it would have went something like that, like this. He would have probably said, I swear that if by the Lord that if you don't go out, not, he's probably really ticked. Not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. Let me tell you my biggest struggle. Confrontation. I hate it. I don't like it. I like the gift of comfort. I hate the gift of confrontation. Some people have the gift of confrontation. And I think if you do it appropriately and kindly, you can actually speak wisdom into people's lives. That's one way that you can receive wisdom. And in this moment, Joab calls King David out. He is saying this to David. Even though you're sad that the person that overthrow, was trying to overthrow you died, I want you to know that God has called you to be the king of Israel and we just took care of your problem. But here you are sulking up in your room wishing that you were dead, going against God's calling, wishing that you were dead and Absalom's alive. Clearly we mean nothing to you. We mean nothing, our army, myself, we mean nothing to you. You're not going after God's calling. You don't care about being king. Right now you need to step up because you need to go out and talk to your men because they just absolutely gave their lives for you and here you are sulking over Absalom. You're being selfish. More dysfunction after time after time, little things have crept into your life and you're not using appropriate judgment. So here's what happens. The king got up and this is really big and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. I want you to get these two things this morning. I said them before, but here's the deal. We like to ask for wisdom in the midst of the storm when we should have asked for wisdom, wisdom before the storm approached. We should be saying, God, protect me from this rather than God, get me out of this. When you begin to let dysfunction in your life, stuff begins to creep in. Stuff begin, becomes clouded. Your judgment becomes clouded. And we think the littlest things that might not make a huge deal can kind of creep in. It's not gonna be that big of a deal. It's not gonna be that big of a deal. I'm just gonna kind of push the boundary, push the envelope a little bit. And before you know it, you look back and you're like, I, I don't even know where to start. I've developed a habit. I've developed an addiction. I've developed a problem. 
I've developed all this stuff when all along God was saying it would have been very nice to have you recognize the storm. But here's the thing, we've all been in the storm. So you might be saying, well, Mike, that's great. How depressing is that? I'm already in the storm. I said earlier that the gate was a really big deal because people would stand in the gate and then they would have the second line of defense, the troops, and then they would have the kingdom. What David is saying here is basically saying, no more, no more dysfunction. I'm king, I'm king of my own life, I'm king of my own decisions, I'm king of my own choices, and I'm king of this kingdom, and I'm gonna stand here in the gate, no more dysfunction gets in. I think that's what we could do sometimes in our own life. I wanna call the band up here because they're gonna play a special song, but I think that's what we could do sometimes in our own lives. If you see the storm coming, would you have the courage to stand in the gate and say, nope, I'm not letting dysfunction enter into my life because I know that it damages me, I know it damages relationships and I know it messes with me and I'm not letting it in my life. Maybe the person like all of us at some point, we've all let stuff in, nobody has a pass on this. Maybe you're the person that right now you're just, you're sitting there and everything is so dysfunctional and life's a mess and you have problems and it's like, welcome to the club, we all have problems and, and maybe God is asking you to have the courage to take a stand and pull David because he had dysfunction in his life. He's got siblings that, one of them that's raping somebody. He's got a, a, a son that murdered a son. He's got an army that killed his son. He's had an affair. This guy is a murderer, he's an adulteress, he's a liar, he's a sinner, yet he's a man after God's own heart. What does that even mean? What are we talking here? I thought a man after God's own heart was supposed to be perfect. That's not what it's saying. I think God is actually trying to paint a pretty cool picture that if David can mess up, you and I can too, but here's the deal. David had the courage to get back in the gate. I wanna tell you something that as we close, I wanna, I wanna encourage you this morning that if you're in the storm and your judgment is clouded and you think God's done with you, I wanna just encourage you to just get up and get back in the gate. The gate was significant in Israel because what it was displaying was a moment of you saying, nothing comes through here. I think that verse, I think the verse of protecting your heart and guarding your mind and the things that we wanna do sometimes is we're looking at that verse, we just think like, oh, that's just, that's just a, boring, a boring thing because if I do that stuff, that means I have no fun or I don't have any freedom. And I think that's really the exact opposite. I think God knew that if dysfunction got in your life, you could end up becoming the person that he never intended for you to become. If dysfunction got in your life, you'd begin doing things you never thought you'd do. And I have let dysfunction in my life at times and I've hurt people because of it. And it's always hard for me to, uh, I have a, problems sometimes admitting, you know, issues. Um, I think sometimes I actually do it a little bit better on stage, believe it or not, than I do in person. Because it's easy to stand up here and be like, oh, I got flaws and stuff. But uh, sometimes when I'm having real intense conversations with people, it, it's hard for me to admit when somebody confronts me with something. Because I usually get defensive or I get prideful and remind them all the things that I'm good at. Somebody tells me one thing I'm bad at, I'll give them four things I'm good at. There's some pride there. I don't know what you've let into your life this morning. I don't know the dysfunction that's there. I don't know if you've 
went down paths where you're just like, man, God could never do anything. But I want to tell you that you can get back in the gate, just like King David. I'm going to venture to say that your life is not as messy as King David's was. In fact, I know that, that that's just simply the truth. I mean, I just told you all the things this guy did. There's no way that your life's as messy as this guy. And he still had to do what God asked him to do, and that was get back in the gate. So this morning, if you'd bow your heads, I'd love to just pray for you. Dear Lord, this morning, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would, would flow through us. Um, this morning, I want to I want to pray for two types of people. I want to pray for the first person, the person that the storm has not yet hit, but it's coming. I ask they recognize it because that's wisdom. I ask they'd recognize the potential dysfunction that could come in and cloud their judgment and make them who you never intended them to be. I pray for that person. Sometimes recognizing when problems are gonna come into our life is really hard and sometimes they're really easy and we're just foolish and don't wanna actually maybe think that they're gonna be there. But the truth is that you said we're gonna have trials. You said we're gonna have issues. You said we're gonna have hard times. And when we're walking through them, those really, really hard times that are just gut-wrenching, the ones that just in the pit of your stomach make you sick, the ones that keep you up at night, the ones that you wake up, wake up to, God, those are the, the issues that when we're in the midst of the storm, it's so tough. And I just pray that if anybody in this room, that first person that sees this coming possibly, sees dysfunction, would you allow them to stand in the gate and to be able to say, nope, I'm protecting my kingdom, I'm protecting my heart because David knew that if he stopped it at the gate, it would not get through him, it would not get through the troops, and it certainly wouldn't enter into the kingdom. But because of all the years of dysfunction, he didn't have anybody at the gate. Who we associate ourselves with is a really big deal, so who he would have had at the gate would have been a big deal. Who we have at our gates, God, our friends that are supposed to speak truth through our lives, that are supposed to confront us, that are supposed to care for us, that's another side of wisdom. The people that we put at the gate is a big deal. And for the second person that's in the midst of the dysfunction, that's in the midst of the, the storm, that feels like there's no hope, feels like their marriage is broken, feels like their kids don't, don't wanna have anything to do with them, feels like there's addiction, feels like there's temptation that's beyond what they can handle, feels like they're just in a mess. Right now, I, I pray for them. I pray that they would see what David did and they would say enough's enough. I'm gonna do whatever I can to get help. I'm gonna do whatever I can to have somebody help me. I'm gonna do whatever I can to surround myself with better people. I'm gonna do whatever I can to make better decisions. But it stops here and I'm gonna get up. I'm gonna get in the gate. I pray for those people also. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would move this morning. I ask that you would fill our hearts, God. I ask that maybe even showing up this morning, having the courage to come, to get out of a nice comfy bed would be the first step of standing in the gate. I thank you for who you are, Jesus. We love you. We are beyond grateful that you try to make our lives worth something. And I ask that we would do great things, God. In your name, Jesus, we love you. Amen.